The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello again, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. In this episode, we're going to look at artificial intelligence, robotics, and a lot of those things and their impact on the future. But first, as always, a look at who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist with 30 years' experience as a commentator in The Guardian, Times, loads of places. I go to conferences, I hear people talking about being futurists, and they speak on what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now, or several years after most of the audience, including me, have retired, to put it another way. So I focus on the near future, one to five years from now, and the impact it's going to have on us. Do please have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk, where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the showreel on site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you've done so already, thank you. And if you're new to the show, welcome. So, it's time to welcome today's guest. Did I say guest? I meant guests, plural. One helps organizations to succeed and increase efficiency by automating routine processes. His company delivers digital workers, software robots. The technology is also known as RPA, that's Robotic Process Automation. Digital workers enable organizations to automate the routines of knowledge work. The other has started and scaled three AI stroke machine learning, that's artificial intelligence stroke machine learning companies, two of which, including his own Symantria, two of which, including his own Symantria, were subsequently acquired. They're James Ewing, UK Regional Director at Digital Workforce, and Oleg Roginsky, Founder and CEO at People.ai. Both of you, welcome. Thank you, Gay. Okay, so... Thank you, Guy. You're welcome. So, uh, both of you, a lot to talk about, but let's get the fear bit out of the way first. James might be the best person to uh, talk about this, as your company is called Digital Workers. Is AI going to make us all redundant? There are areas of the organisation that once fully automated and once AI is concluding tasks, there probably are roles that we don't need. But what we have seen is it's a transition of our roles into other more value-based work. So what we see in healthcare is where routine tasks that is basically just taking up time of healthcare professionals is now being automated, which basically allows them to focus more closely on, on healthcare and, and taking care of people rather than some of the more administrative tasks or desk-based tasks that they were basically forced to conclude to basically make the hospital operational. So there is a fear. Uh, there are roles that will go away, but uh, you know, I think reports talk about that 25% of the roles that we're looking at now don't exist in the organisation. So it's a changing workforce that's being supported and augmented by AI and robotics rather than replaced. And that always strikes me as very well until you're one of the people who do the repetitive dull tasks, but that is nonetheless your livelihood. Are people going for uh, retraining programs? Is this improving for people whose jobs are going to be replaced? There is retraining going on. And like I say, if you look at a lot of organizations that are transforming, you know, RPA and AI does come under the, the banner of digital transformation. And as organizations go through digital transformation, you know, a number of things change in their business, their channels to market, the way they process stuff, uh, their back-end applications. So there's an awful lot of work that means that different roles, different tasks, different processes emerge. So retraining is absolutely around that digital transformation, that path to being more efficient, cheaper to operate, uh, better customer-centric type organizations. So yeah, it's absolutely part of that change management process. And, and I think we all know that IT projects without change management do tend to have a fairly high chance of failure. 
And I suppose, Oleg, the other thing is that if, uh, if you go back, say, 20, 25 years, uh, if we'd said that people would be made redundant for, because of automation, but it's okay, there'd be things like web design jobs they could do. We would all have said, what's web design? We wouldn't have understood the concept. I mean, I, I suppose there'll be other jobs coming that we can't actually conceive of just yet. Absolutely, Guy. And, and that's actually something that is a good contrast between what I do and what James does. We, while uh, robotic process automation is focused more around automating kind of routine, simpler tasks that you have to do all day long and probably not the most value add time for a human to spend, there is another area of AI that, that I believe is really emerging is, is basically augmenting humans in complex tasks that cannot be fully automated. So instead of taking your job, it's kind of having a co-pilot sitting next to you and telling you how to do your job better more efficiently, faster, cheaper, etc. Can you give me an example where that's worked? It, it, it's something that uh, sounds quite abstract. The uh, modern self-driving cars, they don't drive for you completely, but they provide you with the co-pilot uh, thinking or any of the best next action products today where the system basically automate, figures out what you should be doing next that's statistically most significant for you and provides you with a recommendation, starting with music recommendations and all the way when you pull out your Uber app and Uber knows where you're likely going to go next and gives you kind of one tap way to, to select the next destination. We're seeing that also happening in B2B all over the place right now. Now, there are, of course, a lot of people implications here, not just thinking about the jobs that we've already covered. But if I employ a lot of people in the UK at the moment, I have to pay employers national insurance. Mm -hmm. The question that's been um, put to me occasionally is, should robots actually pay tax, or at least should the employer have to pay the employer's uh, contribution to tax that they might have? I'd be interested in both of your perspectives on uh, whether people will just use this to, say, to save tax. Interesting point, Guy. I mean... So I've worked with some uh, larger organizations that are using robotic process automation to actually bring roles back into the UK, where they've outsourced large swathes of back office tasks to offshore locations. Uh, they're finding that for, for what was 250 or 300 FTEs worth of effort, full-time employee worth of effort in the UK, using a robot platform that can be down to as little as 20 or 30. Uh, it's an interesting point. I think there's going to be a debate in the future. If, for example, an organization typically doesn't outsource, there's things like TP regulation, which covers the transfer of employment between employer and outsourcer. I think it would be an interesting debate to see what happens if you say, well, actually, these are 15 people are now going to automate the process and we're going to, we're going to move those, those physical processes to an RPA automated robot process, whether there'll be some discussion in the future about whether TP regulations apply. It's an interesting point. I think it's, uh, it's up for debate. Yeah. From our perspective, it's a little bit also, since we're in a different market, it's a bit different. We supercharge, one of the core use cases we do is we supercharge the effectiveness of salespeople. When mm -hmm. they sell, they end up selling more with the help of people AI, significantly more, which means they make more money and they pay more taxes. So our approach to this is people who use people AI, uh, we actually help get more taxes versus, versus uh, kind of reduce the tax base. I'd like to pick up on a point that James just made about the uh, fact that people are bringing jobs back to their home countries, whether it's the UK or whether, whether the USA or wherever it is, and automating them. Uh, is this going to kill traditional outsourcing or rather traditional offshoring, do you think? Just because uh, I keep saying that India is still doing really well and that company organizations like NASCOM are telling me that uh, the, uh, the Indian outsourcing market is still growing. There's still a high number of tasks that, must, whilst they might be repetitive, 
and volume-based, they still require a level of human judgment. So, so some of those roles in terms of if I'm going to outsource, what I'm looking to do is lower the cost base of doing that task. It doesn't necessarily mean you've made it more efficient or, or, or drastically lower the cost, but you've changed the cost base. When I talk about the outsourcing model bringing roles back into the UK, typically they're a different type of role. So we've seen the growth of the center of excellence for automation in organizations. Uh, and typically those are being built by people from within the business. So when I look at customer services centers, we've seen people that were just customer services operatives on the phone doing representative tasks. They're now part of that center of excellence and they've been retrained to understand how to discover automated processes, how to map those processes and then build them. So they're actually a much higher skilled role than the jobs that were being outsourced. So it is a change in the way that the market is delivering Outsourcing, And equally, on the other side, a lot of the Indian outsource and a lot of the offshore outsourcing companies are looking to automate processes because they know if they don't, the cost of automation versus the cost of, of physical FTEs, uh, there's no comparison. A robot can work up to 25 or 30 times faster with more accuracy than a human being. So unless they transform their models to embrace automation, some of their existing contracts will probably not be renewed. We're an interesting time in RPA in that we're probably only about three and a half to four years into the industry being really active. So if you consider I signed a five-year or seven-year contract on an outsource, you're probably just coming to the time where you're considering renegotiating that contract and looking at the opportunities for automation instead of that out, what's in that current outsource contract. So again, we're, we're in an interesting time in the market. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it all sounds terrific. Uh, although, and of course, the other things are that the, um, you don't get uh, machines needing a holiday. You don't get uh, machines making human error because they're not human, obviously. But stuff does go wrong sometimes. I mean, we, we all remember, I'm sure, although it's three years ago now, uh, the Microsoft's uh, chatbot on Twitter, Tay, which was taught to be racist in about a day by uh, various uh, uh, people. I know it's a long time ago, but how do we actually protect against AI bias and uh, AI being mishandled by or even unintentional bias? So this is actually a huge topic in the US, in the United States public discourse right now. I think we all will need to get to in terms of building out AI solutions without bias is a concept of explainability. Right mm -hmm. now, it's a new topic in, in artificial intelligence. It's not just AI making decisions, but also AI being able to explain algorithmically how and why a specific decision was made. And thus, if AI decisions are explainable, you can regulate them, you can make sure they're not biased and all that stuff. It's a very nascent area of artificial intelligence right now. But I think as the area, as the space is maturing, we will have to have minimum explainability requirements for pretty much all AI made decisions. GDPR, a European regulation, is actually very, uh, very black and white on that. There is a clause there that says there is no decisions that can be made by, by the machine that influence human livelihood that can be made per GDPR, which is really, really interesting. And that's probably the first regulation step in answering this question. I mean, isn't that where uh, we get into a very interesting area where we can't actually regard AI uh, or robotics or any of these things, machine learning, whatever you want to talk about, as uh, a thing in their own right? You actually have to accept that they do exist in the world. So there will be a regulation in the EU. There will later presumably be a regulation in the US. The US, uh, sorry, the former USSR, the Russia, uh, Russian uh, areas will have their own interpretation. That's before we even started talking about China. And uh, then people like, you know, in Australia, they'll have to decide where they go, what they're going to uh, do about all this. 
This all works really well as long as we can all agree on something. But planet Earth and its history haven't been like that, has it? There's two conversations which I've been have, having over the last couple of years around AI, and it touches on something that Oleg said, but this concept of AI transparency and understanding how these things are making decisions. And the other concept is something around AI safety engineering. When we flew people to the moon, they didn't get there by accident. They did it through many, many disaster scenarios that pretty much meant whatever was going to happen on the way, they'd already counted for it, which meant we could safely put someone on the moon and bring them back again. The same is true for AI. You wouldn't launch a solution that has the potential of insulting your customers. You know, you have to have that concept of safety engineering into the AI solution to ensure that it's not going to go off the rails and it's not going to do something harmful to your business, your brand or, or customers. So it's an interest, like you say, and then you move into the global economics of what different countries are going to do in terms of legislation and regulation. It's a huge subject. Uh, so, guys, it's actually something since we started on GDPR and now we're talking about regulation, get, getting everybody aligned on that area. It's something that I observe is very interesting and brings in a nice political dimension to it. So, we, uh, we, we are doing really well in the United States and we started our expansion to Europe to learn the difference between European regulations and how things are evolving in terms of AI and overall privacy concourse. And I probably, I'll throw in a controversial thought out there. From our perspective, a US company moving into Europe, uh, UK with the Brexit conversation is actually looking a little bit more appealing than the rest of Europe in terms of being much more forward looking towards AI and being more nimble in the regulatory conversations versus the larger EU machine. Is that because as a single country, uh, we would have, it would be easier because we're kind of starting from here and uh, the EU perhaps has the baggage of when AI was brand new? Or is it just a feature of there being lots and lots of countries involved? I think it's both, but also the fact that Britain is looking to align more with, with the US or other areas right now and maybe naturally has a little bit more liberal view on, on regulation in these areas or looking to jumpstart a growth in terms of bringing new technology into the country, but a bit more liberal stance in the UK makes things a thousand times easier. Perhaps to add to that, we've also seen the UK government has been big on initiatives around driving innovation in technology, including AI. So, you know, there's funds and there's directives and there's pushes to make digital and AI more acceptable in the UK. Um, so that there are pushes that are coming from central government to drive the UK to be an innovator, to be a hotbed of AI across the globe. And I think, as Oleg said, I think there's sometimes a more propensity for the, for the UK individuals to be more technology savvy and technology acceptance. I mean, one of the things we see about areas where RPA is accelerating is just countries that are more cloud savvy. So some countries are less cloud acceptant. And so, that, I mean, AI thrives on high processing power and lots of data which really lends itself to cloud solutions. So countries that are, are backward in that area will struggle to adopt AI more broadly. Another interesting point that's been raised from time to time, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote. I was at a meeting a while ago, I was chairing this, and uh, there was a lawyer there who was talking about an experiment that had been done, I think it was in the US, where a computer had been programmed to persuade an actual jury uh, with a judge. They actually had a proper judge there. Uh, the computer had been progr uh, programmed to persuade the jury not to allow itself to be turned off and of course it succeeded by the end of it the jury said no don't turn this computer off it, it wants to live and of course the judge had to then say this is ridiculous it's a machine of course we can switch it off i'm just wondering you know will we get to the stage where robots have actual intelligence so will they need any sort of rights do you think or is this should we never lose sight of the fact that they're just tools 
Uh, if we go back to the Isaac Asimov rules of, of robotics, they should have rights, but should, they should also have responsibilities in that sense. But okay. we're probably... We're probably can, few, can I just uh, say, I keep hearing Isaac Asimov's rules of robotics quoted as if they're actual rules. Isaac Asimov was a fine science fiction author, but his rules of robotics are something he made up. <laughs> they're not written down anywhere except his books and where his books are quoted. <laughs> you know, I think we, we can get carried away with those, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. But, but, they, but they still make sense. There's something that, that was written, what, 30, 40 years ago? But funny enough, today we're building AI and we do not have anything like that in legislature. So there is abs true. absolutely no legislation today around building the, the swim lanes, around how you build artificial intelligence. And hence, a lot of people are referring back to Isaac Asimov's rules because those are the only things that are, that are written down today. I take that point. Perhaps I should uh, should not overlook the fact that Isaac Asimov was also a noted scientist as well as a science fiction author. That's uh, uh, so. I mean, you think robots should have rights and responsibilities, perhaps? Yeah, we we're probably a couple of decades away from robots actually reaching that level of consciousness. Uh, obviously, a pre-programmed robot in a courthouse can do a specific job, and as James can share with you more, today we can make robots that do specific things really, really well but they're not good at doing general kind of artificial intelligence. And while there's a lot of research in that area, we're still really far away from it. So uh, I think this discourse is probably five to 10 years too early. However, eventually we do have, the, we will have the need to fully regulate the responsibilities, but also give robots the rights because in the online world, you won't be able to tell the difference. James, your perspective on that? I think that's right. I think at some point in the future, the, AI will reach reach a level of consciousness. I think it, it, on the basis this is the near futurist podcast, you know, to think about what's happening, the move from raw RPA to intelligent process automation, and that's really bringing together AI and automation together. And really, what that means, it, it it says two things. It says let's use AI to understand fully unstructured data. So, reading emails, for example, that's something you'd normally need a person to understand what that email request is. And then as we look at processes, you get the more intelligent processes. We're using AI, we can build levels of decisioning into the process. So we can make a number of complex judgments using an algorithm that can then mean that that process can continue to be automated. But so it's, these are things that don't have a level of consciousness, but they certainly have a level of understanding around the tasks they've been given to do. So it's nowhere near consciousness yet, but actually we're seeing some more complex automations that start with very unstructured data it could even be photographs where we're making decisions around something that needs to be repaired or replaced through to decisioning around should this person get an insurance claim or should they be referred to, to some other investigation process so process automation is getting more and more intelligent by the infusion of ai but you're right consciousness is a way away and again as oleg says there isn't really any rule book that's been written about it yet so i think at some point unfortunately Unfortunately, as we always know, very often regulation is driven by some sort of problem. Seatbelts only became regulation when people get getting hurt in car crashes. So unfortunately, I think we may be looking at a scenario where there'll be a high profile problem and then that will drive reg regulation. And on that cheerful note, uh, we're running out of time, so perhaps I could uh, ask you to perhaps cheer the uh, listeners up a little bit more by telling them, that, telling them where they can find out more about yourselves and your organization. Yeah, you can find out more about People AI at www.people.ai. We are 
a company based out of United States, uh, California, San Francisco, that is freeing up 20 to 30% of every salesperson's time by automating all of the uh, complex tasks that they are, that they have to do in the process of enterprise sales. Excellent. And James? Digital Workforce, we are, uh, you can find us at www.digitalworkforce.com. We're an organization that's located in six locations from Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Poland, and the UK. Uh, and as an organization, we've, we're probably one of the few companies that's actually managed to industrialize and scale out uh, the use of RPA. We have numerous clients that now run north of 250 to 300 bots in their estate, and they're concluding tasks that are saving money and also giving people back time for more meaningful work. James Ewing from Digital Workforce and Oleg Roginski of People.ai. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Guy. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futures podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'm taking a little summer break, so I'll be back in four weeks' time rather than usual too. That's four weeks' time on the 30th of August. See you then, and thanks again for listening. Bye. Thank you.